Joshua Ferris, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. We have been huge fans ever since your first novel in 2007. And then we came to the end, which also happened to be a finalist for the National Book Award. You won the Penn Hemingway. And you won our own Discover Award back in the day. The new book is A Calling for Charlie Barnes. It is an extraordinary novel, and we are going to spend some time with Charlie, who I really can't wait for readers to meet this guy, because I really want to know what other people think as well. Hi, Miwa. Thank you for having me. It's always a delight to talk to you. This is going to be fun, though. So Charlie, Charlie's a middle-aged guy. He's, what, in his 50s when we meet him in 2008? He's a little older. He's 68. Okay, okay 68. Sorry. Yeah. The economy, as we all know, has gone completely pear-shaped. It's 2008. The economy's crashed. And we meet Charlie in his basement. And Charlie is hes living a life that he wasn't quite planning. So can we tell readers who Charlie is and how he got to his basement? It takes the scope of his life to understand how he ended up in this place. But very briefly, I would say mm-hmm. that one idea after another failed to pan out. Mm -hmm. And he has a a break at some point in his life where he gets to work for Bear Stearns, an investment company. And he doesn't like Bear Stearns. He has ethical disagreements with how Bear Stearns runs things. So he leaves and he goes off on his own and he starts his own business with the intention of clarifying for the average investor the costs involved in investments. And that doesn't quite pan out either. So he's really, really operating on fumes He doesn't have much money. He's getting older. I mean, he is old. He's at 68. Things Mm -hmm. have played out. And he's still trying to make a go of it to some extent. He's still got ideas. He wakes that morning, in fact, with what he believes is a terrific new idea uh, that he's going to pursue to the ends of the earth. But he's also woken with the possibility of a cancer diagnosis. Charlie doesn't always have the best judgment. Charlie really believes, though, in this myth of the self-made man. He is that guy. I mean, as I was reading, especially in the early parts of the book, my first thought was Charlie's a generation. Yeah, He's not just a guy living outside of Chicago, Illinois. He really, to me, his attitudes and the choices he made and spending lots of money on billboard ads for one of his companies and ballpoint pens with logos. And he's just, he keeps missing the point. And he thinks, well, if I just have one more chance, or if I just make the right phone call, and Charlie is a bit of a crank on the phone. I mean, we meet him as he's sharing his diagnosis with people he hasn't spoken to in years, including it sounds like his own children. Yeah. Yeah. He's in hot water. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. in really, he's in it deep. He's got these psychic debts. He's got these personal failings. He's got these professional disasters and he needs to get out. He needs to get out somehow from under this enormous weight of a whole life. And I'm very pleased by the things you're saying, because this is all of the stuff that I want to hit. And for reasons that have to do in large part with what you're talking about with the myth of the self-made man and that American generation, we hear a lot about that generation being the greatest generation, uh, or maybe that was the one prior, but certainly the ones that my dad really belonged to. It's like the mid-century madmen kind of thing, only really Charlie doesn't have the success of one of those characters per se. He's the guy who just never, the numbers just never show up the way he needs them to. Right. And that was, a, it could be a very, very selfish generation. You know, mm-hmm. that, that generation sort of assumed that it would be there on the plate for them, on their behalf. Uh, and at their behest. And there were a lot of considerations that now from a much more enlightened perspective of 2021, we have specific words for them. We have the word privilege for them that never would have occurred to Charlie, but nevertheless is his. And I think that kind of assumption that you were just 
in the world and should be handed certain things mm-hmm. is that generation's assumption, is that mid-century American man's, American white man's assumption. And that was very much on my mind uh, because I started writing the book very shortly before Trump was elected. So mm-hmm. a lot of that, you know, current the current political forces were certainly informing my understanding of, of the world from which Charlie came. Now, before we get too deep into Charlie's troubles, I will say that he is, in my mind, always redeemed by some ethical consideration. Mm-hmm. In, in, the, in one instance, it's this going off on his own to serve in some better way the average investor. And it's his ethical scruple against Bear Stearns that prevents him from maybe making the millions that he always thought he deserved. So he's a complicated character in that mm-hmm. regard, too. He, he won't let himself be successful to some extent. And he means well. I mean, it's not Bonfire of the Vanities part two. It's really not. It's Charlie. He's well-intentioned, but he really does not have the thread of his own life. He can't tell himself the truth. And in a lot of ways, it's very funny. I mean, these phone calls that I alluded to earlier, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of them, but they're very funny to read. I mean, the guy is a loon. The messages that he feels perfectly free to leave with strangers, these poor people on the receiving end of these phone calls, and you're just kind of like, oh, he said that. Yeah. I love it when, Mm -hmm. as a reader, Mm -hmm. exactly, I am surprised by the way people behave, you know, that you're aghast and shocked and standing back a little bit. And- I love it even more when I'm writing it. When I have tapped into a sense that I'm not in control of this guy either. Like he's he's slipped my knot and he's going off on his own. And so I actually knew that the book was cooking with gas when Charlie would say things to people in these conversations that were not really appropriate. Uh, not really appropriate is a gentle way of describing. I was howling. And okay. There were multiple moments in this <laughs> book where I was howling with laughter because Charlie doesn't really know he's a liar. He doesn't really know he makes bad decisions. He really does love all of his wives, but he's not entirely clear on the number of wives he's had. He's not entirely clear on the number of children he has. Yeah. And he is still well-intentioned. I mean, don't misunderstand me, but the details elude him a little bit. Oh yeah, a lot. So when you're writing comedy like this, how do you make sure that the comedy isn't just a spit take based on a detail from a moment and takes on a more timeless feel to it because you don't want to just throw in brand names or famous actors, things like that. You don't want to give readers a reference point that dates everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a constant battle because that would be a a very quick way of sort of, you know, dispatching with where we are. I think much more important is to establish that. I mean, the fact that the world is going to hell in a handbasket in 2008 is vital to what eventually happens to Charlie and how he rethinks the world and rethinks his place in it and sees the possibilities that I think were dawning for most people around then, a, a different way of approaching things, a more fair and reflective way of, of thinking about the world and going about your personal business. But he has a clouded vision. And that clouded vision, I think, is the perspective to some extent as the writer and in terms of putting him together. It's the perspective more of maybe his more critiquing children or his more uh, condemning ex-wives. It is the point of view that others had of him, but at the same time infused with his own understanding, his own frustrations. So it's a kind of blending of perspectives in order to create a guy who I very pointedly call in those first hundred pages or so a farce. Because I very often think that, especially with people who are failed uh, or those who don't have a professional mantle to sort of come before them, 
and explain who they are in some kind of quick way. You get informed about those people through others and their take on them. I certainly got that way with like, for instance, my mother's perspective of my father, which, you know, in 1984, shortly after the divorce was not high. Interestingly, over time, she came around and really, I think, very thought very highly of him. But I was very interested in trying to blend these perspectives into what looked like a farce. But we also have to remember that a man is a deadly serious proposition to himself. And so it was also crucial that while I was conveying these farcical elements of Charlie, that I was always remembering that there was a man behind there, that there was a boy behind there, that there was a son behind there, that there was a failed son behind there, so that I could really, you know, make the reader understand where some of these failings were coming from for him. I mean, he's he's very profoundly neglected as a, as a newborn. And so I'm always trying to remember as I'm creating these comical situational moments that there's a real life there, that there's a real person behind this, these failures and this, this chaos that he can't see. I was actually feeling a little bit of Ravelstein, that Saul Bellow novel uh, in the early parts of the book, where it's uh, that kind of operatic, farcical. Charlie really doesn't have a clue who he is and the choices he makes. And then he sort of just writes it off as, well, you know, I mean, I can always explain. I, I can always explain. I can always explain. I can always explain. I mean, that sort of becomes Charlie's mantra. And he's confused when his explanation doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, what once one person calls a confusion, <laughs> another person calls an outright lie. I mean, he's not above lying. You know, I even make it a point in the book to say, I'd really like to say that he did something better. Mm-hmm. You know, as, right. as the narrator of this story, I would like to tell you that he chose wisely, but he didn't. And I think that was also crucial to having a kind of ethical obligation to this particular story, this story of the, the myth of the self-made man or the supposedly self-made man and of the American century male, you know, that, that they, they very frequently got excused. They very frequently got kind of smoothed over for whatever reason, you know, there were excuses offered up all the time, but I didn't feel like I could do that. But I still had to also just make sure that his humanity was on display at the same time. And that, was, that wasn't easily done. You write about loneliness in this book in a way that not a lot of people would think is part of a comedic novel. But Charlie's really lonely. His kids are really lonely. All of his wives have been lonely in their marriages yeah. to Charlie. He doesn't know how to connect with other people outside of the scope of his own vision. He can't even connect with his own brother. There's this idea, family is everything, and that your blood family, the family you're born into, needs to be everything. And here's this guy who really, he can't even connect with these people. How's he going to connect with anyone in the outside world? But the flip side being that he doesn't seem to think there's a problem with his loneliness, can't recognize his loneliness, can't recognize loneliness in other people. Yeah. The focus has just been off for him. It's been mm-hmm. on achieving in ways that the you know wider culture and the business world would call a success. And after right. that, he thought, well, all will fall into place. But in the meantime, life happens and he makes a hash of all of these things. So at the moment that we meet him, this is put a finer point on by a cancer diagnosis. So all of this stuff is just piled on and piled on. And the man is going to have to sort of face down something because the Kids come back in short order. Uh, the professional challenges compound. And the, as you say, the loneliness, or the, I would even think of it as a kind of marginalization, like a self-marginalization. Mm. Like he, he's in the basement of his crappy house, getting everything he kind of deserved, really. But he's put himself there. 
Mm-hmm. And so getting out of that basement, out of the house, becomes an absolute necessity right when the, the clock starts ticking, really. And that's when I knew that that's where I had to start because you really can't go any further downhill. Did Charlie show up first or did you just have the idea for this book that you wanted to write about these larger ideas? For, or did you suddenly have a voice in the back of your head and you're like, oh, this guy, I think I need I, to tell this guy's story. I was really interested in this dynamic that I had observed almost my whole life between my older brother, who's a half brother, but still, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I don't think of him like that. And my father. And there was, a, there's a separation of 15 or 16 years between he and I. So he sort of like served as a guide to my dad, but a guide that became increasingly dubious over the years because there were things that my father as a, as a 19 year old father to Mm -hmm. a young boy were very different than as a 35 year old father to me. Mm -hmm. And so we had these really different perspectives on him as a, as a son, but I would look at that dynamic and it was, it was very loving, but it was unhealthy for, for many years. And you could sum it up and call it a generational gap. You could say it was one man who believed that achievement came from professional success, from the certificates on the wall and the figures in the bank account. And another that rejected that and rejected it out of hand, maybe simply because it was his father's achievements, you know? And so I would see these these radically different perspectives on life and the ways in which one thought the other was either mendacious or a fool. And they went back and forth and back and forth like that. You could see these generational critiques happening. So to some extent, my characters are based on real life. They're exaggerated. They're really bent out of shape. And, you know, I throw everything at them. But it was that that I found so fascinating. And it was the accusations that my brother would level at my father for either shallowness or greed or whatever, or a kind of like salesmanship, you know, that he found too slick. It was those accusations that I had in mind when I was creating Charlie. Megan O'Rourke has a great line, actually, from her review of your first novel, Then We Came to the End, that stuck with me when I was reading Charlie's story because it comes back to this myth of the self-made man, this idea. She said, what's best about Then We Came to the End isn't the familiar point that the mind is easily colonized by an institution. We're talking about really big ideas. We're talking to a certain extent about despair, but this book is still really funny. And it's not funny at Charlie's expense. It's funny because the situations he puts himself into. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it's not at his expense. That would have felt like a failure to me. I mean, that would have felt like a shooting fish in a barrel. I had these large ideas that had to get, as you say, enacted. How to do that really is to some extent qualify or let the reader know that we're going to go broad here. So mm-hmm. when I call that first section farce, I want you to be fully aware that what we're going to be dealing with then is character exaggeration to some extent and sort of the broadest perspective on this one particular person's life that it could be broad. And then to chip away at that. And I think I did something similar actually. And then we came to the end and that everybody, when you walk into an office, everybody's a type initially, and it really requires you to not be lazy and go beyond it and get to know these individuals so that they take on names and specific features and characteristics. And, you know, even hopefully you get glimpses of their soul and their their deepest hopes and dreams and their fears and desires and despairs and all the rest of it. You have to do that work in order to get at who these people really are, in order to feel like you're engaging in a healthy individual and giving them the credit that they deserve and all the rest of it. And that was the same case with Charlie. I mean, he did represent to me these excesses and these failings of 
men of my father's generation. But at the same time, while that critique had to be there and it had to be hitting almost all the time, I had to remind myself that this was a man and he was a failing for all these different reasons, but they, they had to be explained or they had to be gestured at at the least so that a portrait emerges of somebody who's more than a farce. When the farce gets sort of left behind, hopefully then you're allowed to feel something for these people who are flawed as we are all flawed in the hope that a full picture takes place of the farce. And this brings us to Charlie's son, Jake Barnes. Josh, you named a character Jake Barnes. The writer in this book is called Jake Barnes. I'm still laughing about this. But also one of Charlie's previous wives is named Charlie Prophet. We have to talk about names for a second here. We have multiple Barbaras. Where did these people come from? You know, uh, some of them are based on real people. Mm -hmm. And my mother's name is Patty. But I thought my father fell in love with my mother. He was really smitten. And she was quite pretty and she was very charismatic and and kind of probably like we would say she was a little bit out of his league, frankly, but he was really, really taken. And I thought, how could I make this name special to convey him instantly? And I thought, well, we'll just make it his name. Like his name would attract him instantly. And it's kind of, it is kind of like unique to say Charlie and Charlie. I also remember from being a kid that there was this couple that were my parents' friends named Terry and Terry. And they spelled it the same way. It was very absurd. And then I had these friends who met in law school because they were alphabetically assigned seats with one another and they were both wards and they ended up marrying. So we now call them the ward ward. Names are very funny. Names are really funny. And they they convey something instantly. And if you can use them as the writer to sort of establish either a power structure or a feeling, I should say as well that this book needed to be laced with a lot of fictionality. It needed to be laced with a lot of illusion and the possibility of sort of crashing through to the writer's intentions and the writer doing the actual writing. And so one of the ways that I believe that's instantly conveyed in books that I really love, like pension novels, and even going back to Tom Robbins books, you know, where the names are so goofy, you can't even believe in them. To some extent, I wanted that to be there so that I could signal to the reader that I'm playing around with certain ideas of autobiography and the fictionality of everyday life. So they were really crucial to doing a couple of different things. We switch perspective towards the end of the book. And obviously, I don't want to give anything away. But the tonal shift when Jake sort of steps out, and Jake really does reveal himself to be his father's son, he's so much like Charlie, but might not recognize how much he's like Charlie. Yeah. Was that part of the original structure? Or were you just letting Charlie guide you? And then suddenly Jake said, hey, wait a minute. Hi, I need a minute. I need to tell my piece of it. Getting everything into place was very 11th hour. Mm -hmm. okay. But I knew that I had to layer this thing and layer this thing and layer this thing. And I had it kind of like laid out for me. A very, I mean, there were some initial throat clearings, but then I saw it in a flash and I knew the formal structure. And I thought, oh, shit, I got to write this now. I mean, it was going to be it was going to be a pain in the butt, right? It was it was a lot of work. And I didn't quite know certain things. So I really did have to let the voice and the scene and the basic setup guide me and then just get a draft down and think, okay, what's the element that's missing still? And I think really what that is, is a kind of subtext to the ways in which generations connect. One generation passes on failings to the next with maybe some compassion thrown in, with maybe some enlightenment thrown in. Jake has his very definite own failings. And his myopias, 
his willfulness really is meant to echo in a different profession charlie's failings as well and this became incredibly necessary for me incredibly powerful because you're so inescapably bound by fate to your family it was an 11th hour edition as i say but it was absolutely crucial to the success of the book Jake shows the world who he is very, very quickly. And we see the other children, though, through only the lens of Charlie or their mother or a stepmother. We don't really get to see them quite the way we see Jake. And I don't think Jake really understands his siblings any more than he really understands his dad. Yeah, to some extent, that family remains a cipher for him. Mm -hmm. He can't. He can't get an objective take on these people. You'll know the quote that says, when a a writer is born into the family, the family is finished. And the reason for that is because in comes the memoirist, right? In comes the writer and says how things are. And I have read many memoirs where even with the caveat, hey, I'm not telling anybody else's story. I want to make sure everybody knows that I don't have a lock on this stuff, that they have different perspectives, that we have differences and all that. Even with those caveats in there, once those caveats are gotten through, the truth is presented. The objective truth, what happened is presented as if there were no disagreements, as if it were all ironed out and smoothed over and everything is exactly as the writer has it. And I just always think that that qualification is not enough. And so it really motivated me to have an unreliable narrator who claimed to be completely reliable, but that you as the reader know, I'm seeing all sorts of discrepancies here and I'm getting an understanding that basically what this family is, is a series of dueling perspectives that can never be reconciled. You have a great line in the book. It was really impressive, the genius these people had for ghost stories to describe the way they talk about each other, whether it's parent to parent, parent to child, sibling to sibling. None of these people want to take anyone else's word. It's it's everyone sort of taking their own perspective and saying, this is it. This is the actual truth. There is no truth beyond this. And that seems like a really difficult way to live. It does make for great comedy, but it's got to be exhausting. I tell you what, what you just summed up in about a hundred words is the largest sentimental education of my life to arrive at an understanding that there is a vast difference between my perspective, which seems ironclad and airtight, and somebody else's, which qualifies and checks and even destroys that certainty. So that once you go, oh, maybe they have something on me that I'm not aware of, you let that perspective in a little bit and your life brightens, it broadens. If you can't do that, you remain isolated and despair never gets resolved you know, you dig deeper and deeper into the hole. So I think so much about like growing and maturing and loving is about letting those perspectives in and changing your own, blending your own with that other person's. I never really had that as a kid. And maybe that's a symptom or a legacy of dysfunction because when divorce hits, there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are wrong parties and there are right parties. I sort of was grown up to believe that there were strict fault lines and anybody could discern them and then tell truth from fiction. But as I got older, I just started to recognize those certainties were the fictions. They were the things that were preventing us all from being a little bit more compassionate toward one another, a little bit more understanding and loving each other, maybe a little bit more successfully, such that the dysfunction never had to happen. That's in this book somewhere. I don't know how much I convey, but it's part of my thinking. Family mythology, though, is powerful stuff. I mean, it makes for great literature. The Barnes family, in all of its iterations, this is not a family you want to hang out with at Thanksgiving, but you want to hear their story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to hang out with them at Thanksgiving. (laughs) I mean, I don't want people to think that they're unlikable because they're not. 
this book has a lot of heart and it balances out because otherwise, if you'd stayed too far on the side of farce, it wouldn't have been as successful, I think, as it is. I mean, very similarly to my first book, actually, there came a moment when I realized that how I was writing, which was like between voice and plot, I would switch kind of between voice and plot. But there had to come a moment where I really settled down on one character. And so there's a middle section of that first book that is an extended night where we spend with the boss of the of the collective. And here I recognize the necessity to allow for the possibility that people change. I haven't really resolved the question for myself in terms of how much that's possible. But I'm much more sanguine. I'm much more optimistic that that's a possibility than I was when I was 20. And I think that goes hand in hand with the fact that I was a much more certain person at 20 than I am, you know, in middle age. And so I really have to think that people change and that the possibility that what I wanted to explore in this book with Charlie was taking somebody who seemed hopeless and really under the gun and providing the opportunity for him to realize some greater sense of worth than he ever even knew was possible as an objective. Now, I will say that this is to some extent informed by my real life. And this is the ways in which Charlie and my father, whose name was Chuck, no one ever called him Charlie, differ radically. And that is my father, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So a lot of this stuff is just sort of taken, you know, low hanging fruit. Mm. But my father was very different in that when he called me to tell me that the cancer was back, he had had this extraordinary opportunity to live seven extra years after getting a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which is incredibly rare. When he called me to tell me the cancer had returned, that he had about three months to live, it was a wild contrast to the first time that he called me to tell me that he had been diagnosed because he wasn't crying. He was at ease. He had found himself during those seven years and done a lot of work to arrive at what he thought about life and about God and about the spirit and about the world. And, you know, this was a two-time Richard Nixon voter who went out to campaign for Barack Obama in 2008. He knew about Barack Obama when he was running as for a state senator. He followed this guy like Matt. He was a very different man from beginning to end, especially in those last seven years. And I found that so remarkable. That makes its way into this story, but it is, it's positioned differently. That really happened to my dad. And I found it very inspiring. So in that way, I wanted to inspire this character that is loosely based on him to be a better man, basically. It works. It really works. This is a very hopeful book. It's hopeful. It's charming. It is laugh out loud funny. But Charlie, he makes a lot of bad choices. And you have to walk this line between poignancy and heart and straight up comedy. When Charlie makes not great decisions, there's a moment where the reader can breathe. Yeah. mostly while they're snorting with laughter, but the breathing space matters. So as you're writing this book, and you said you started this before Trump was elected, so we're looking at 15-ish, 2015? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're living with this book for five years. You're in the weeds. Did anything surprise you while you were writing it? There were many formal desires that I had for it that I thought, oof, I don't know that I can do that. I take a lot of delight in those Nabokovian games, you know, the, the ways in which things shimmer between reality and experiment or reality and fictionality. And I felt very strongly this was not just a game, but something rooted in real life, which is that so often we'll kind of pivot to go, oh, that's not really me. Maybe the truth gets shaded and suddenly some amount of fiction. I mean, we had this addiction to calling everything that came out of the White House for four years a fiction. And I thought, yes, it's a fiction, but that's to really demean fiction. Like These are just malign lies. These are just craven power grabs and all the rest of it. 
fiction is something a little bit more akin to illusion, you know, to the ways in which maybe maybe your illusion is that you'll be rich one day or you'll be president of the United States or you'll be a movie star or, you know, that God is real and, life, and mortal life will meet you upon your demise. Any, any number of reasons to get out of bed in the morning, they seem vital to me. And so I discovered the possibility of incorporating some of these formal ideas that preoccupy me as a fiction writer into the book itself and, you know, making sure that they thematically lined up and lined up with the characters was a, was a terrific surprise for me and a great delight to write. All right. We've talked about Nabokov. We've talked about Pynchon. I know DeLillo has been a touchstone for you. Who else is in your personal canon right now? I think that the the book that I love the most is a book that I could just never, never even understand how it gets written, which is To the Lighthouse. It's a very interesting book in, in my life just to see the shifts in the culture. So, you know, in college, we were taught to read the modernists. We were taught to read Joyce, Pound, to Eliot, Conrad, to some extent. I mean, these were the giants and these were the important voices. And we read Virginia Woolf sort of as an addendum, you know, sort of like as the, the female addendum to this important time period in, in literature. And it's, you know, 20 years, 25 years later, I read these books and Joyce, to some extent, just bores me. And Pound is brilliant, but troubling. And Eliot is not very terribly relevant, but Wolf is brilliant. And the insights and the ability that she had to go to consciousness, to tell instantly in a few words what somebody is thinking or feeling and the shifts, the constant shifting, just she just seems to have such a capacious soul and such an, a wide ranging understanding of men, women, old, young, children, you know, the dying, all of this incredible vision for how the world works that, to my thinking, she blows all of these men out of the water, even if you combine them, all of their achievements into one. I'm not sure Charlie Barnes knows how much of an impact Virginia Woolf has had on him. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you want readers to know about Charlie? I want there to be the transition in this book from farce to myth, basically. For the moment to arrive where Charlie has entered into that space that we reserve for those that we write about. He is, as you have said, a mid-century American type. And that type is easy to turn into a joke. But as I have added, man is a deadly serious proposition to himself. And so I had to arrive there. I had to allow him to take himself seriously and insist that the reader do the same. And then I wanted to move out of the even of the human realm, into a man who seems to be living into his 90s and his 100s and who has a day named after him in the, you know, the village of Oak Park where he is living at that time. And so I'm really trying to suggest that this is sort of how somebody of mythic proportion gets written about, gets described and put down on the page. And it also covers 100 years, you know, he was born in 1940 and it goes to, or his mother is really conceives of him. And then it goes to 2020, really. So you have basically a hundred years of history there. So I wanted to take on these, these mythic proportions, I suppose, out of the realm of the human and into the myth. And that was just very important to my, the full scope vision of the thing that I had for him. So what's next for you? Well, I have to get on the, on the horse again and I'm doing some throat clearing, you know, I mean, that's necessary and preliminary to anything. I did spend a damned long time on this book. So I have all these ideas that now I'm just sort of like, it's kind of nice because rather than 
boring down on one particular story, I get to be promiscuous for a while and just play around with a half a dozen things that are still untested and unbesmirched. So they may become stories. They may become novels. We don't yeah, know yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Joshua Ferris, thank you so much. The new novel is A Calling for Charlie Barnes. It's out now. Thank you, Mira. Thanks for having me on the show. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.